Hi, my name is Isabella, and I'm the host of this podcast, Amateur Activist. Here, we talk about various social, political, and sometimes theological issues, and we stumble our way through it because, well, we're amateurs. We don't have all the answers, we don't have any influence, and we certainly don't have any resources. But we are willing to sit down and have a chat. If that sounds like you, we invite you to join us on Wednesdays as we cover pretty much anything. We believe we deserve better and we're willing to do what we can to change the world. Will you join us? Hello, amateur activists. I am so excited and honored to welcome our guest this week, Kat Adamus, to the podcast. Hi, Kat. How are you? Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Before we go further, though, I have to say I am truly honored that I have you on the podcast, that you're sitting across from me and talking with me. A year ago, I finished my uh, Bachelor's of Theology, and in my last semester, I had the opportunity to do an independent guided study, and I was approved to do a unit on Muharista Theology, which kind of stemmed from reading your book, Abolita Faith. And that book and your words were so incredibly influential, inspirational, and it just, it shook up my entire, my entire faith and the way that I engaged with it and the way that I engaged in conversations about faith with other people. And I wrestled with so much in my entire degree, but especially that last semester. And so I'm, I'm just incredibly grateful for the work that you've done and the work that you're continuing to do because it, it truly is felt um, by fellow Latinas, Latinos, but also just fellow Christians who are looking to wrestle with their faith. So before we even get started, I just have to say thank you so much. Oh, that means so much to me. Um, really, I mean, that's why I wrote Abuelita Faith. I felt like so many of our experiences needed like a place to land and words behind it. Um, and so, yeah, it really means so much to me that um, you received so much from Abuelita Faith. You know, I always say that after I wrote Abuelita Faith, it was no longer mine, but ours. And so I love how it takes shape, right? Um, mm. That's how we do theology. We, you know, we, as we're um, theologizing and as we're doing this work together, right? In conjunto, it um, develops and becomes other things that even far beyond what I could write um, in there. So yeah, so congratulations on your study and um, for all the extra work that you did. I'd love if you could start by just sharing a little a bit a little bit about yourself, who you are, what you do, what you write about, anything that gives um listeners um a chance to get to know you a bit before we start a conversation. Yeah, so um I'm a Cuban American um author and podcaster and uh as you mentioned I like the faith was my first book and it was really born from just my experience being raised in a predominantly Latino Latina context and predominantly Cuban. So I'm, you know, Cuban and, um, and it was my wrestling with growing up with, um, my abuela, my grandmother as the beacon of spirituality and faith mm -hmm. in my life. Um, and not really realizing that, right. Just, it was sort of my norm as I was growing up. And then when I left that context and I found myself in, a white evangelical context where obviously my culture was not the dominant culture um, and my expressions of faith were not the dominant expressions of faith. Um, that's when I began, well, I had 
many existential crises, but also I just began really wrestling with, um, you know, what is it, you know, what, what was the faith of my upbringing? And I was hearing so many messages that it wasn't legitimate or it wasn't, you know, whatever, because the faith that I experienced growing up wasn't what the dominant culture said was true, legitimate faith, right? It didn't look exactly the, the right. way that it was quote unquote supposed to look. And so that's when I really began wrestling um, with that. And um, I, you know, stumbled upon one or two little articles on like, I will eat the theology. And I was like, wait a minute, this is, an, this is more than just, you know, a little article here and there. And I'm so grateful and indebted to those who wrote about this, you know, Daisy Machado and um, Robert Chad Romero. I'm so indebted to them for their work. Um, but I was like, I, I need more, right? I need more of this. Um, and that's when I really just began looking at Abuela's life. And I began making these, these connections um, to women in the Bible and then also to Abuelita theologians throughout history. So to the overlooked and unnamed uh, theologians in our lives and, and in Abuelita faith. And really in my work, I sort of answer the question, what if the greatest theologians the world has ever known are those whom the world wouldn't consider theologians at all? And of course, you know, I'm, I'm talking about our unnamed and overlooked, marginalized women primarily in our lives. But, um, you know, since that work, since Abuelita Faith, I'm really just looking at um, all sorts of places that the dominant culture never told us to look uh, when it comes to wisdom or when it comes yeah. to the wisdom of survival, right? Mm. Um, and that's to nature. That's to um, just all sorts of things that... Um, yeah, we can we can glean so much about the divine and about the sacred, but those are not the places that are um, yeah the 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 men in the pulpits tell us that we should look to as far right. as wisdom. So yeah, I I want to start by talking about disembodiment and embodiment when it comes to faith. So in the first chapter of Alberita Faith, you write about like research grief and. Um, the academic space, and specifically you write about what happens when we separate ourselves from our study. You, you write, when our musings about life and faith exist only in fragments, we live disembodied realities. God becomes disembodied too. I, it's like one of the first things that I highlighted and then wrote a quick note about because it was such a, as being in the academic space when I read the book, being like, oh yes, especially I think as women, forcing ourselves to disconnect emotionally, personally from what we're studying. And I had never heard it phrased or like that, those dots connected that creating a like a disembodied reality then would must mean that God becomes disembodied too. I would love if you could expand on that. And I guess what it means to believe in or engage in with a God that has become disembodied or to have a faith that's in fragments. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think that that was one of the first things that I sort of realized, you know, um, so much of my experience with faith and my spirituality growing up in Abuela's household was very tangible. And it wasn't necessarily like, oh, charity work or go do these things in order. But it was literally God was found in the midst of what I mentioned earlier, survival, right? Like right. that's where you met the divine. That's where you met the sacred was in the, the everyday, the in and out, um, trying to survive. Right. 
Um, and then as I looked in scripture, I noticed that that's the reality in so many of the women in particular in the Bible and so many of the reality in so many um, marginalized people throughout history, right? Your faith is 100% tied to what you're going to mm. eat the next day, right? Mm. Um, just these very tangible things. And so, um, yeah, as someone who was also, you know, is also in the academy, and, and I, you know, I always caveat that I'm not anti the mind, you know, I think the mind is a wonderful and incredible thing. And I think, though, what it is, what is important is that the mind does not supersede or is not more important than the body. And I think in so much of academic spaces, um, yeah, I mean, solely we're doing the sole work of the mind. And we forget mm-hmm. that, you know, our God is a fully embodied God. And I think that that, um, yeah, that was a very important sort of realization for me too, you know, uh, as I was writing and working on that, even prior to that, um, realizing that so much of my theological work really meant nothing. You know, it was all these just thoughts that really had nothing to do with reality. And I had nothing yeah. to do with, as you mentioned, being a woman. It had nothing to do. It was all just these sort of disembodied thoughts about God that um, didn't do much to me. And I think that that is when I, began to wrestle with these thoughts within the context of survival. And I was like, well, well now this, this touches something, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I always say that for, for the dominant culture, Jesus is so much like an idea, right? Like mm-hmm. Jesus, like the idea of Jesus is amazing, but like the actual life of Jesus is offensive and annoying and bothersome to so many people, right? Um, because Jesus was an offensive and bothersome person um, yeah. to those um, that he came in contact with, right? To, to many within the dominant culture. And I think it's mm-hmm. the same thing now, you know, um, that Jesus, Jesus is just, it's bothersome when you want to um, take, you know, Jesus's words very seriously. And I don't mean, right. you know, we say, People say, you know, to take the Bible seriously. And what they mean is like certain of Paul's instructions, but I'm talking about just like the actual life of Jesus. But yeah, I think that was a, um, a very big realization for me is just not divorcing my mind from my body. And then also taking that next step and saying, well, what if all of these things that are connected to survival, all of these ways that people survive, all of the, you know, the dancing where people find liberation, um, the sewing, the where where people literally are are using sewing to protest or to mm-hmm. provide for their families, right? Like all of these things are not just not just ways to survive, but they are actually ways to theologize, and they are actual mm-hmm. ways that people um, are thinking and moving and touching and acting in such a way. Um, that speaks of the sacred, right? And I, mm-hmm. so I, I like to say that what if sewing and dancing and all of these things are actual acts of theology? Like that is how we are thinking and making sense of the divine. Mm-hmm. And that, it was in that, that I, you know, I was like, well, this is, you know, this is what an Aulilita theology is. And this is how, like, this is literally the faith of so many of our ancestors. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And I, I love what you say about, because I, I think there were so many of us and it became like a little joke at the um, college that I went to here that we do our bachelors and then we either leave church or there's very few of us that stay. <laughs> right. Oh yeah. But I think, I think at the heart of it, it's not that we 
were overwhelmed by information or we were never really in it to begin with. I think it, it became a, we spend X amount of years of our life talking about things that are theoretical or that don't seem to have like much to do with people down here on earth every day. And you do that for so many years talking about hypotheticals or things that we'll never know concrete answers to when there are people hungry and there are people who are going to sleep outside in the cold and there are not like it's really hard to grasp how what I'm writing about in my academic papers or what I'm researching has any impact on people much less like me individually sitting in my room you know what I mean like, I think that is at the heart of it oh, yeah. you, you you put that so well because I think you have to, at some point in your faith, I think, figure out how to make a theoretical or like, not, a, not an imaginary Jesus, but someone that lives in theory and kind of up here, real and tangible to yourself. And then the next step would be to other people. And like, how do you make right. Jesus real and not just someone that, you know, you worship on a Sunday and then you move on with your life? Like it has to be translatable to like everyday struggle, everyday right. like survival. And I, I love that, you know, you wrote that in the book, but you've also just put it so beautifully now. Like, I think that's at the heart of so many people starting to wrestle with their faith or with their religion is trying to figure out how do we do that without the tools? <laughs> um, right. Yeah. Yeah, no, totally. I think that that is, yeah. What a lot of us who study theology um, wrestle with all the time. And then I think, you know, earlier I mentioned like not just charity, not that I, there's anything wrong with charity. I think we need to, you know, mm -hmm. be doing charitable things. But I think also even in our, oftentimes when we pursue these charitable things, um, because of the messages we've internalized about Jesus or even, you know, systems that are in place, whiteness and patriarchy and all of these things, I think that even those can be tainted, right? Even our acts mm -hmm. of charity sometimes can come from just really weird places that, you know, Christianity kind of, you know, they just come from. And so I think that with Abuelita Faith, I wanted to take us another step and say, well, it's not just that we, you know, um, give to folks in need, which we should, but what can folks in need? And I, you know, say that in quotation marks, like give to us, like what wisdom right. can we learn from people who we're told don't have wisdom or, yeah. you know, don't, uh, aren't wise or, you know, like Abuela, right? Like she would never have been considered a theologian in the, you know, I mean, I was in seminary when I was wrestling with all of this and, and I was in a very conservative white evangelical seminary and Abuela would have never been considered a theologian. In fact, mm -hmm. I was supposed to go and evangelize to her, mind you, like her whole life she was dedicated to yeah. the church and to her faith, but because it didn't look the way it was supposed to, that it was my task to try and tell this mm -hmm. woman who has survived all, you know, like, yeah. oh, put your trust, you know, it was just, it's so yeah. backwards. And so I think that taking it a step further and, and yeah, making our faith tangible, but then also recognizing that we are not like the saviors in this yep. story, you know what I mean? And I think that's a lot of times, you know, we're, we're told, okay, yeah, you know, your faith needs to touch the ground, but then also you are the star here, right? And so I want to say, well, no, wait a minute. What if we aren't sort of the stars of the story? What if 
our abuelitas and those who we are told do not have wisdom are actually the ones that we are to learn yeah. from and receive from mm -hmm. uh, because they know most about more about God than we can ever more about faith or spirituality than we can ever learn in a classroom. Right. Yeah. And I think that that was my also part of my realization was here I am sitting right in these classrooms, paying this money to receive this, you know, education from, you know, a lot of people who, I mean, knew a lot about God, but a lot of times, you know, a lot of them did not have the lived experiences yeah. that so many of my community have, you know what I mean? And not, that, you know, not that I, I, I feel like, yes, I learned a lot from a lot of folks and not that I didn't, but then I would come home and think like, well, wait a minute, you know, yeah. I, there's so much that I've learned from my community, from their lived experiences, not just the books that they read and their head knowledge. And I think that that is also part of it it's going beyond charity which you know we should all be charitable people but it's going beyond charity and looking to those who survive as our greatest teachers and our greatest especially teachers of the divine and the sacred mm. and spirituality yeah. and faith yeah no i i think that that second step you mentioned of not what can i do for you but what actually can you teach me about like just life in general, I think even the world and maybe that's impacted by or influenced by Christianity's hold on just society. But I think even as a society, we view people in need, again, air quotes, as not being able to impart anything. Like there's nothing that right. they can give us that we, that like we need from them. Right. And I think it's just, that's such an interesting um a very good challenge but i think even that is a complete shift in like in theology and how you view people and how you interact with people and then how you engage with your own faith of like what you're willing to to read and i when i was writing my essays on muharissa theology it was i didn't realize how emotional it was going to be but writing in spanish like writing my academic essays with spanish interwoven into my English and having that be accepted as intellectual and academic language was right. like, oh, reading, you know, reading sources and books and articles in Spanish, because that was the only language they were written in. Like, right. what are we willing to read to even gain mm -hmm. knowledge? Is it only English and German? Because that's what's considered like an intellectual academic language. Like those are such, such a challenge <laughs> um, mm -hmm. to like, to to wrestle with that in our because that's that's a personal wrestle that can't be like a a flip that you switch overnight that's something that for the rest of our lives we will be like wrestling with and challenged with yeah no I think that that's huge I that was one of the big things that um in writing out like the faith I was you know I wanted to sprinkle in Spanish words, and I did not want them to be italicized. So I made sure my yeah. publisher did not italicize them because I wanted, you know, folks to just be reading the book and then stumble upon it and realize like, you know, Spanish is just like, it's a, it's a language too, you know, yeah. it's not special <laughs> or different, or yeah. it's just another language, you know? So yeah, I, um, I think that that was a very special thing for me. And so I totally, I totally feel you. I mean, language is so intimate and language mm. is so important. And so, um, yeah, any ways that we can, incorporate our mother tongue into who we are outside of just, you know, our personal, yes. you know, whether it's at home or whatever, but just, you know, into, um, yeah, who we are in the world, 
I think is so important. So I'm glad you had that experience. Thank you. You mentioned briefly now, but you've also written in the book, um, the, the centrality of food and cooking to the spirituality of Latinas and Latinos. So I'm half Mexican, grew up speaking Spanish. I've lived in Australia for five and a half years. I don't have a single person here who speaks Spanish, who is Mexican, that cooks or eats, you know, true Mexican food. I don't have anyone that relates to like, you know, specific experiences you have when you're growing up with tios and tias and abuelitas and pozole cooking on the stove and what are they, cobijas that have tigers and plants on them. Like none of that, that's such, Mm -hmm. those are very extremely specific things to like a Mexican Mm -hmm. or Latin upbringing that so many people here are just like, I like tacos. (laughs) And, (laughs) and, And it wasn't until I left home and was completely, you know, isolated from family and from those experiences and from recipes that I was like, oh, I need to figure out how do I keep this alive? Like, how do I mm-hmm. keep this part of me alive that, you know, is making empanadas and is knows how to make pozole and is making it for people and not just for myself. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't, right. it was, it wasn't until I moved that I realized, oh, there is something extremely spiritual and divine in this process of making mm-hmm. food, of eating food, of gathering people to share food. Um, mm-hmm. But can you explain for people who may not understand that yet, who may not have had that that move from home or that removal or being forced to kind of do that alone, why it's so important or how it's so important that eating, cooking, sharing food um, is a way to, to do theology, to theologize, or is an outworking of our spirituality as Latinas? Yeah. Yeah, so um, I think in, in in Abuelita Faith, I write, because I've written this in other places, so um, I say I think, so I, I'm pretty sure, but <laughs> I write uh, um, about how I, my grandmother, Abuela Flora, my great-grandmother, would always ask me, like, ya comiste? You know, that was, oh, like, yeah. her, con- like, there was just that question, like, ya comiste? You know, and, and I write how, you know, for many of us, um, many of our communities who, um, you know, food is the central sort of bringing together of things. Um, food is not just, you know, something you fill your belly with, but food is sustenance. And food is, you know, especially for many of our communities who, you know, I know particularly for mine, for many who left the revolution and many who, you know, came to the States unexpectedly and just, you know, didn't want to necessarily. It was a, you know, political move um, or they moved for political reasons. Um, I mean, food, you don't know if, where or how always you're going to get your next meal. And so food is really, um, food is life, really. And I think for many communities, uh, particularly uh, communities of color who are not living, like who are living here in the States, right? So like Mexican-American communities here in the States or Cuban-American communities here in the States, I think it's also, um, yeah, the way that you can connect with you know, your culture and who you are, I mean, you come together and that's your safe space, right? Like that is um, a very safe space. And, um, and in that a spiritual, a sacred space, right? Yeah. If a space is safe and a space um, connects you to who you are, you know, that is a sacred space, right? And I think mm-hmm. um, a lot of folks might not really understand the value and the weight and the beauty of that. And I think, um, it was certainly that for us growing up. I mean, 
everyone would come to Abuela's house almost every single night for dinner, right? And she, and I think what I, what was so special about it was that this was her table, right? Yeah. She set the table, she set the menu, and we all sat and we were guests at her table. And I mm. think that that also is such a very, um, you know, when we think of, when we're thinking theologically, of marginalized communities and what that space means for them and what it means for us to be a guest at someone else's table. I think that we are, especially as Christians, right? You know, we talk so much about hospitality and about ho being hosts. And, um, but what does it mean to be a guest at an unfamiliar table? And I think even for those of us who, you know, I don't live in Miami anymore. So I think that holding on to that is very important for me as well. Mm -hmm. Um, and what does it mean for me to have guests at my table and also for me to be an a guest at an unfamiliar table? I think that is where we can um, yeah, have so many connections and make so many connections um, into the deepest parts of who we are. Um, and so, yeah, I think that food is sustenance and food is life. Um, food, when we can share a meal um, with folks, with, like heart meals, right? Like meals, like, as you mentioned, the pozoles and all of the things that, that make you who you are. I think that that speaks to, um, yeah, the deepest parts of our communities, mm. the deepest parts of survival, um, mm. joy, right? Celebration. I talk about how, you know, that is also where theology is done. I mean, that's where you sit and you talk about the struggle of life and what it means um, where you met God and how you met God and how you made it to the next day. And, yeah. you know, all of that, um, it is all so deeply sacred and so deeply spiritual. You know, I, I say, I wrote an Abuelita Faith about how, you know, Abuelita theology is done in the kitchen, right? It's done yeah. when the, when the frijoles are simmering on the stove and, you know, the floor is being mopped and, you know, we're all sort of just hanging around and being and doing life how it is intended to be done right mm -hmm. um and i think that 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 is what i want that theology is right um yeah. folks call it a kitchen theology yeah um because those are the, the most sacred spaces in our in our communities and our homes um and that is where the struggle of survival you know is sort of is where we struggle for survival mm -hmm. and where we also receive um, the strength that we need to continue struggling, struggling for survival, yeah. literally physically by like physically feeding ourselves, right. the, you know, the strength, but also um, the strength of family and of community and of really just connecting to our ancestors and to our roots. And I think that that was another big thing for me in Abuelita Faith was reconnecting to my ancestors, reconnecting mm -hmm. to my roots, because in in the very white evangelical spaces that I was a part of, I was disconnected. You know, we talked about being fragmented and disconnected and disembodied. I feel like so much of who I was, was disconnected because, you know, I was told, well, this is what it looks like to follow God, or this is how you're supposed to think about God. When all of my lived experience was very different. So, you know, now here I am, reclaiming those experience those lived experiences reclaiming that embodied theology reclaiming you know my ancestral roots and that includes food and that includes the struggle for survival and that includes and so there is something beautiful and sacred that happens when um yeah when we can reconnect with that part of ourselves invite others into that space mm -hmm. and also 
be guests and go into those spaces where people can be their full authentic selves and we can sit and just be privy to that, which I think is just such, so magical. And when we are, um, yeah, invited into someone else's space in that way. Yes. Yeah. And I, it's, it's funny because I, I recently back in May, um, kind of hosted my first kind of night of bringing people together and sharing, sharing, you know, my abuelita's recipe. And I, I made, I made chicken mole and it was, I make it normally every year, but I was like determined. I really want people to come over and I want them to eat my food and I want it to be a sharing. And so I spent like two days prepping. I rolled a hundred plus tortillas and it was like a whole thing. And I, it was in that, that rolling of the tortillas that it kind of hit me that, ah, uh, like this is more than just, it's been, it's always been more, but right now for me, it's more than just rolling tortillas on a Tuesday night. Like this is something oh, yeah. so sacred. And mm-hmm. I tell my dad all the time, you know, it's not, it wasn't until I moved that I I think I really understood this whole, like, I think connecting with your ancestors always seemed like, a, oh, that won't happen to me. That's more of a other people thing. That's so nice. I don't really understand it. And it wasn't until I moved that I was like, ah, like there's a real grief from being disconnected from family, like literal family, but also just proximity to like Mexico and proximity to people who speak my language. Mm-hmm. And so then connecting with ancestors and connect, connecting with the sacred and divine and like that level of spirituality was never something that I did growing up, especially in like white evangelical spaces. And so it's mm-hmm. been a very beautiful, like new journey, I think, but it's been also really encouraging, I guess a bit, but also like just mm-hmm. really comforting to know that no matter how I do theology from, from now going forward, like I'll always have like my abuelita who I know now was like such a woman of God and had was praying mm-hmm. and was doing theology in her own way and mm-hmm. we'll always have her and then her mother and my theas and all the women mm-hmm. of my family behind me no matter what I do mm-hmm. now and that's such mm-hmm. an encouraging and comforting thought that I didn't really ever engage with before this right. year right say. yeah well that's beautiful yeah and I I think it as you mentioned I mean yeah Rolling tortillas is, a, I mean, that is theology. That is a sacred um, act because not only, you know, are you reconnecting with your ancestors, but um, in that you are serving, you are, you know, yeah. like there's just so much encompassing yeah. in that. Um, and you are bringing your full self. And I think that that is also, um, you know, as you're serving your community and your friends, you're doing it in the fullness of who you are. And I 100% believe that that is what God wants from all of us is to be in the fullness of who we are. I mean, we see it in story after story in the new Testament, you know, where God asks folks like, you know, what is your name? What do you want? Yeah. You know, I mean, there is like this intimate connection with who you are. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that that is when we are able to bring our full selves and there is a beautiful sacred thing that happens there. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. I, when I first read Abuelita Faith and I was telling people about it and I was sharing kind of quotes and stuff, the a reoccurring kind of question or comment I got was, um, there, there aren't women 
on the margins in the Bible? Like what, what I don't even know what that means. Like what is like, there's, of course there are women in the Bible. Of course they're there. Like wh- what, like, why do you need to engage with them? And I thought that was such an interesting <laughs> comment to make because one of the first things that I think I reflected on after reading your book was, oh my gosh, there are so many women that we've overlooked. Like there are not like, yeah, there are the main ones that we gravitate towards and we preach about, but there are also so many more, especially unnamed women that you talk about in your book that are just their title or what they do that we skim over because it's embedded in a verse that is, um, quote, you know, using quotes really about something else. And so I'd love if you can talk about the importance of, um, not only looking to the margins in our lives, but why it's important to engage with these women and these in these characters in the Bible stories that are that are really on the margins, that are unnamed, that are kind of hidden in, in scripture. Yeah. So I always say that the Bible is a book written by men and for men. I mean, really, that's when you yeah. think about the context when the Bible is written, it was written by men and for men, right? Um, and so when you see the stories of the women in the Bible. Um, besides your main characters, right? Yeah. Esther, or besides, you know, just your, your common, um, which there's like a handful, right? Like Mary, Esther, um, I can't, Ruth, you know, yeah. there's literally a handful. Um, but yet there's like hundreds of, you know, uh, very important men talked about and whatever, maybe not hundreds, but close to it. Um, but so the Bible, as I said, a book written by men and foreman. So when you come across um, a lot of the women in scripture, whether they're named and unnamed, and many of them are unnamed, um, it's exactly as you said. It's just a sort of, you know, that's not the main part of the story. You know, I think of Rizba. I was in seminary for like years before I ever really learned about Rizba. Maybe I heard of her or something, but mm. it was years before I actually ever really gave her story any real attention. Mm. Why? Because it's, well, it's like two sentences, right? You know, mm. her, her sons are killed and she basically cries or, pro- or you know, many people did never use the term protest, but she just mourned their death for six months, mm. you know, at their gravesite. And then we move on because David is the main character in that story. Um, But as I was really looking into and asking questions about these women, well, wait a minute, you know, reading the before and the after and the in-between of their stories. And like I said, asking questions about, you know, what was their, what were their experiences really like? Not only did I, was I able to see these women come to life, but I was able to see these threads of, wait a minute, their stories aren't just you know, blips in the grander story. But if you really pay attention, their stories end up changing the course of Israel's history. I mean, like Rispa, it was because of her protest at the grave site or at the uh, site of her son's murders that David took notice of, you know, like what had happened. And it wasn't until he took notice of her and then righted the wrongs that were that were wronged because of her protest that he ends up, you know, doing what he's supposed to do. And then God ends up setting, sending rain and the famine is over and the entire nation of Israel is able to eat. Right. Like, and that's why I keep bringing up this idea of just like very basic survival. Right. Like, and it was because of Rizpah's protest that the nation of Israel was able to eat. Had she not done that, there would have still been a famine. Mm. And this is again, stuff that, 
is never talked about. I mean, because the, the, yeah, the point of the story was that there was a famine and whatever, but you know, David is the one who righted those wrongs. Well, no. Why did David write those wrongs? Because Rizba protested, right? We see the same thing, um, you know, in the story of Moses and the Exodus story. Um, If it wasn't for, you know, we talk about Moses always when we talk about Exodus, but if it wasn't for the slew of women that are introduced, um, we wouldn't have even half of Moses. And so I think um, when we are able to have, you know, eyes to see, as we say, when it comes to the Bible, there's so much that can be opened up for us. There are so many things, so many, not even just beyond lessons, but so many um, ways that it can shift our, our thinking, uh, shift the way that we see um, and read the text. And then that translates into how we shift and read and are able to experience our own realities. You know, I say that um, when it comes to, and, and I have a new book coming out in like two months. And so I, and I have a whole devotion on this about how in so many of, you know, our evangelical circles, because we're so many of us are so uncomfortable with all of the very uncomfortable things we find in the Bible, Mm. we're typically taught to just like glaze past them. Oh, well, you know, this really sucks, but God is still good. Right. Like all of the stories of, um, sexual violence in the Mm. Bible. I mean, there's so many of them and we're not taught to really sit and linger in these stories because they're uncomfortable and we don't know how to handle them. And so yeah, that was a different culture and that was really weird, but God is still good, right? Yeah. And it what what that does is that translates into how we actually view and talk about and, you know, address sexual violence in the real world, you know, for many Christians. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's unfortunate. God is still good. God is yeah. still, you know what I mean? It's like these very, um, you know, we're, we're not well equipped in dealing with things that are happening in the real world because as and I and I'm obviously talking about Christians because as Christians we were never taught to linger with the uncomfortable things mm-hmm. that we find in the Bible. And not just linger, but like legitimately ask good questions yeah. and feel the things that we're supposed to feel when we read stories about sexual violence like anger and frustration mm-hmm. and disgust. We are told that we're not supposed to feel those things about the Bible, about the things of God. And then therefore what happens, we're taught to distrust our own feelings, distrust our own, you know, these, these intuitions of something is not right. You know, when we read the Bible, we realize this isn't right, but yet we're, you know, we're, we're supposed to suppress that, not trust those intuitions because we're supposed to just trust that God is good. And not that God is not good. Of course, God is good. But I think there is a reason why these things are in scripture and why we were given you know, these God-given intuitions and these emotions and these things that God has given us um, because we are supposed to question and we are supposed to address the uncomfortable. And I think so much of that has to do with the untold, the unnamed women in the Bible who experience mm-hmm. very um, horrific things. Yeah. Um, even the things like, you know, the story of Esther. Yes, she goes through this, you know, she does this incredible thing for her people. But what are the circumstances that lead her to that, right? Yeah. What are the circumstances um, that lead her to her saving her people, right? Her being paraded or her, um, you know, this very evil king that yeah. um, is clearly a machismo, you know, like clearly yeah. just wanting, you know. 
And I think that all of those details are very important to the story and very important, not just to how we interpret and read the Bible, but how we engage in the world as humans. You know what I mean? Um, and so I think it was very important for me to name these things and these stories and yeah. to, you know, call out, you know, like bring forth um, these women who have no names and, you know, give them names or, or just um, turn people's attention um, to their stories, because I think that that will allow us to better turn our attention to the stories of people in our midst who are overlooked, but who are changing the course of history, right? Um, and Awalita Faith, I write about all of the women who, um, you know, did things like so in order to protest or who, um, yeah, use their bodies and use their, um, their ingenuity, their wisdom um, to bring liberation and healing to future generations. And we see that in the women in scripture. And so, yeah, to say that, you know, women are not marginalized in scripture or that, you know, yeah, we have five examples. So therefore, you know, I think that that, um, yeah, I think that's doing a disservice to mm. so many of, um, I think that's really just doing a service to the Bible in general, yeah. right? Um, you know, as as much as I say the Bible is a book written by men of men, I still believe it's inspired. And I still believe that there's so much we can glean and learn and take from it. And um, yeah, and if you also believe those things about scripture, then I think you need to take every character and every story seriously, right? Mm. Not just the ones that we think are important. Um, yeah. But I, and I, and I think that that's something that I really want to do in Awadita Faith is what if we took this whole thing really seriously, yeah. even the stories that are really uncomfortable or even the stories that are of women that are unnamed and yeah, and really investigated um, these places and these spaces and these people um, that have been so overlooked because we live in a society that tends to overlook the yeah. unnamed and the, you know, so, um, so what if we, we change that? Um, yeah. So yeah. that was one of the, the, the big, um, one of the big takeaways I got from your book, but also from just from you while reading your book and listening to your podcast is that you, you love the Bible and you take it so seriously. And I think there's a misconception amongst, um, or about people who are willing to ask questions or wrestle or kind of, um, go maybe a different route or name it differently that we don't take the Bible seriously, that they're, they must not, they're just, they're, it's a joke to them or they're just kind of doing right. their own thing and very often mislabeled heretics. And I think there is um, reading your book and again, listening to your podcast and listening to the words you write in your newsletter and all of, there's a deep, deep love and seriousness that you bring to reading the Bible. And so I want to honor that before we move on, because I think there is like, it's such an interesting um, tension between like us air quotes and them air quotes of what they deem as taking the Bible seriously and having a deep love for the Bible and scripture versus like what we actually do, I think. And it's the same, same right. love and same seriousness. It's just a different outcome because of right. lived experience or because of um, upbringing or whatever. Um, and so I, mm. I love that you say that if we want to take the Bible seriously, we have to take every story seriously and every person seriously, right. not just the men and not just the stories that, you know, provide a great leadership message, <laughs> but the real right. stories right. of women and, um, and people who, um, are there for a reason. 
whose stories are there. Yeah. Yeah. No, totally. I, you know, yeah, I always talk about how, you know, I, I love the Bible and that frustrates me because, you know, (laughs) it would be so much easier if I didn't, you know, really, really want to take the Bible seriously. And I think when I first started writing and talking about the Bible in a way that, um, may have been different than from, you know, the, the context that I come from, the, the very white evangelical, you know, conservative context, whatever. Um, I think that was a big concern that people were like, oh, well, you know, you just want the Bible to fit what you want it to think or whatever. And, I, and you know, and it's funny because I'm like, well, couldn't you say the same thing for yourself? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like you have these <laughs> preconceived notions, yeah. right, of what you think this already says. And therefore, if any, you know, you're nothing's going to change that. And I think you know, for me to take the Bible seriously, I think is to ask the difficult questions about it. I think to take the Bible seriously is to really investigate every angle of, you know, why and where and how, you know, like really, um, because I mean, when you take something seriously, I mean, you really give it the respect and the attention that it deserves. And I think Mm -hmm. that when when, when we're, excuse me, when we're willing to do that, I think only then are we actually taking the Bible seriously and not just, um, yeah, reading it at face value or, um, you know, putting in our own biases and then therefore, you know, and I think, um, yeah, that's been a a huge conviction of mine is taking the Bible seriously wherever that takes me, you know, because a lot of times it might take me places that I didn't intend to go or expect to go or even want to go and you know, getting to conclusions that I'm like, wow, really, really studying this ancient book, you know, ancient and complicated and beautiful and, you know, all the things um, book really leads me. Um, it's led me to, to faith shifts that I never anticipated or planned on having yeah. until I started really um, studying and really taking, yeah, taking it seriously. And so I think that that is a misconception that many folks have, um, and a very frustrating one, but you know, I've kind of just, uh, whatever, (laughs) you know, (laughs) you can think or say whatever, you know, I know, I know how I feel about this. And so, yeah, I think, um, just two more questions and then we'll, we'll wrap this up. Um, but I think there's a, I can't remember where you write in the book, but you, you hold the tension very well um, between acknowledging that the Bible has been used as a tool, Bible and Christianity has been used as a tool to oppress while also holding that the Bible and Christianity has been a tool that has been incredibly liberating. Um, How do you hold those two in tension and how do you, um, I guess similar to what you've said about, you know, reading stories that are, incredibly violent or incredibly um, just wrong for a lack of a better word in scripture and holding that tension with, okay, how do I like, how do I do this? How do I read this and call it God's word? Um, And what does this say about God? So how do you, how do you do that? How do you live your life holding that intention? Yeah. Well, uh, a few things. I think first and foremost, um, you know, we live in a post-colonial and Mm. you know obviously the word post is it's a contended word but we live in a a society um that is shaped by colonialism and by empire and one of the the ideologies or the ways that empire sees the world is in very dichotomous right black and white 
this or that, um, even us versus them sort of thinking, right? Um, because it's easier to see the world that way, right? It's easier to categorize and it's easier um, in the history of empire. It's been easier to subjugate peoples and things when mm. there is um, a clear, um, for example, race or for mm. whatever it is, right? It's so much easier um, to see the world in in binaries. Um, but I think so much of my work is, and, and, and not just my work in, in doing this, but even in my study of scripture and in my study of, um, you know, these stories and, and my study of history and the, the history of, of, you know, humanity in, in the Bible and beyond is realizing that, you know, that's the, the binary and the dichotomy that we see that we've been trained to look at the world is not really how reality exists, right? Um, we, nothing is black or white. So yeah. much of our lived experiences is in the gray area. And so I say all that to say that, you know, when it comes like something, when it comes to something like the Bible, um, yeah, it is very complicated um, because you have this, incredible work, spiritual, sacred work um, that has been taken and twisted and misused and abused um, to serve specific purposes. But it's not, it's, it's not just that, right? Mm. Like the both things can be true that the same people who the Bible was taken and used to subjugate found liberation within the same words and pages and found, I mean, you look at the African-American community um, in the U.S., um, you look at so many of our, our, you know, uh, Latino and Latinx communities um, in specifically in Latin America who were colonized and the Bible was literally used to colonize people. I mean, in Aulita Faith, I talk about, um, uh, um, I talk about Higoberta Menchu and how, you know, she literally started reading the Bible to understand the faith of her oppressors. And right. in that, she was like, oh my goodness, you know, she found the story of David and Goliath and was like, this is incredible. We are David. The colonizers are Goliath. And therefore, you know, she used that as a way to um, fight back against her oppressors, right? And so I say that, um, you know, both things can be true. And I think that that it's, it's so important to name that not just when it comes to the Bible, but when it comes to so many of our, you know, lived experiences, just like all throughout scripture, God tells God's people do not, you know, do like God saves people from oppression and then says, do not do this. I am saving you. Remember what I did so that you do not oppress. Right. Um, the the oppressed can also become the oppressor and we see yeah. this throughout history right and so mm-hmm. it's this thing this idea that like both things can be true and i think it's so important that we um are very tuned to that truth um because we're going to find that truth in so many instances in our lives and i think the bible is a perfect experience or a perfect example of that um and so you know my desire in my work is if both of those things can be true, if the Bible has been used to oppress and suppress and subjugate, and the Bible has also been used by those same people 
to liberate and to find meaning and joy and life and, and to survive. Literally, the Bible has been used as a tool for survival for so many marginalized and oppressed communities. Well, then I'm going to do whatever I can. And I'm going to, um, you know, use my little tiny corner of the internet and the corner of you yeah. know, the, the publishing world to to point people to the other way, right? Not just yeah. the oppressive and subjugating way, but I want to, to say, hey, look, also look at the way that the Bible has been used to liberate. And if we really look into how the Bible has been used in that way, we will find so much more um, beauty and so much more intimacy with God. And I think, you know, going back to what you were saying before of how, you know, um, we, we might be called heretics for how we might read the Bible. But what's funny is that so much of our Bible reading um, is really reading from the lens and the perspective of the marginalized and the oppressed, right? I mean, that's what liberation theology is. That's what, you know, um, yeah, all of this Muerista theology, which is a form of liberation theology. I mean, all when you're when you're reading the Bible through the lens of marginalized communities, you're going to inherently read it in a different way mm. than than the dominant culture. And it's so interesting that that's considered heretical when these I mean, that's what saved so many yeah. communities, right? Like like reading the Bible from their social location. And like, that's where they found faith and survival and sustenance mm -hmm. through the Bible, right? The Bible that we are now reading through that same lens and being called heretics for doing so, which yeah. is just, just so funny and so interesting. Um, so yeah, I think that um, we have to hold that tension. I don't yeah. think that it's, it's a, should we, or it's a, if we don't hold that tension that I, I do think that we are not doing it well, we're not, you know, we're not uh, pursuing our faith well. We're not pursuing our Bible reading um, seriously, to use mm -hmm. that word again, if we are not holding that tension, because that is just fact. I mean, I mean, yeah. you look at history and that is just the fact of how the Bible has been used. And so mm -hmm. if we're not taking that into consideration and we're, if we're not able to hold that tension well, then we're not really, um, we're not really pursuing faith in a genuine holistic way um yeah. because yeah i mean that's just the the fact of the matter it's like saying like oh well you know the civil rights movement or the you know whatever like it's just kind of just erasing a whole yeah. um reality um yeah. of, of of our history and our faith yeah. And, and and yeah so Anyway. It's just a great segue to to wrap up this conversation because, I mean, the podcast is called Amateur Activist. And it's funny because whenever I have someone on and we talk about theology, I always get at least one person who's like, I don't understand what this has to do with activism. <laughs> Why are you talking about theological issues or topics on an activist podcast? And I think it, it and I am grateful for the questions every time because it means listeners are engaging and it means listeners are aware of um each episode and wh what it has to do with with being an amateur activist or activism in general um and i love that we've already mentioned that for so many christians theology and christianity and faith is theory it stays theory or it stays personal it's a personal experience it's a personal salvation um that's all that matters i'm going to heaven and that's all that i care about um, unfortunately, <laughs> or I guess, fortunately, um, our faith is meant to be more than that. And mm -hmm. I think Abolita faith for me 
and engaging with liberation theology and Muharisa theology forced me to wrestle with the theory behind my faith and how personal I was willing to make my faith in order to stay comfortable and complacent. And so um, if you're able, I'd love for you just to kind of, how does Alboritha faith or how does an Alboritha theology force us to turn our faith outward or look outward and engage with people in the margins? How does that a form of activism or how is, how is that engaging with, um, with people differently? Yeah. Well, I think when we're engaging in activism and we're, um, right, we're, we're seeking to overturn systems that are in place that are hurting, subjugating, oppressing people, right? Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, that's essentially what we're doing. And so part of that work is overturning power dynamics, right? Mm -hmm. Um, When power dynamics are skewed in ways that they should not be skewed or when power, when, you know, people are engaging in power over, because power in and of itself isn't a bad thing. Um, You know, there's a difference between, you know, you have power over people and you have power with people, right? Right. You, you're using power um, to liberate and to heal and all of the beautiful things that power can do, right? Um, uh, the power also devastates. And I think that when we, when power is unchecked, um, and we've seen this again throughout history, um, in the Bible even, right? Um, the powers that be that were um, doing the things that they shouldn't have been doing, right? So anyways, yeah, I think when we're, when we're engaging in activism, we're looking to power, we're looking to systems that are in place because of power, and I think what Awalita faith and what Awalita, what my hope that Awalita theology or that Awalita faith does is that it helps us to have eyes to see and to undo and overturn these power dynamics. Mm. Um, because again, when we are guests at unfamiliar tables, when we are engaging with those on the margins, not just charity, but to receive, to learn, um, to glean wisdom. That is inherently an overturning and undoing of power dynamics. We are essentially, um, yeah, doing, you know, we are essentially what I talk about in, in Alarita Faith, jodiendo the system, right? We're screwing the system. Yeah. And in so, we are in, in, you know, in engaging in this sort of, you know, what a lot of people call actually, in, you know, this upside down kingdom sort of thing. Yeah. I know that's like theological language. Um, yeah, I mean, that is activism and that is, um, what I'm hoping that if, you know, if all of us are engaging in this sort of faith and and spirituality and, and in this sort of theology and by theology, I mean like a little actual hands-on theology, then I think that we are, um, yeah, we're doing exactly what Jesus did, right? Um, we're doing exactly what Jesus did and, um, we're, overturning power dynamics. And we are, I think, bringing that, what I like to call on earth as it is in heaven reality, mm. you know, um, cause in heaven, you know, in, in the heaven that is portrayed in scripture, I mean, we don't have any of these sort of yeah. power over hierarchy, you know, besides God, of course. Um, but it, you know, um, yeah. And so if yeah. we want to see this heaven on earth reality, I think that it starts with changing our mindset. Um, yeah 
And it starts with, if we're able to see the world in a different way, then we're able to engage in the world in a different way. And then that transfers, you know, and that continues on, especially those of us who are educated theologically and who it is our job to educate others, yeah. you know, because um, we don't have seminary degrees just for ourselves, but so that yeah. we can teach. Um, and so, yeah, I think that, I hope that answers your question. I see an Alameda theology yeah, as, a, as an overturning power dynamics. Um, just before we let you go, um, you mentioned you have your second book, Sacred Belonging, a 40-day devotional on the liberating heart of scripture. Um, comes out in two months in September. Very quickly, mm -hmm. what is this book about? Who is this book for and where can people get it from when it when it's released? Yeah, so um, it's a devotional and I that's very, I was very intentional. Well, my publisher and I, we, we wanted to name it a devotional because we wanted to reclaim the devotional space. Mm -hmm. um, and I just wanted to offer folks a way to wrestle with their faith um, in accessible ways but that points us to new and different and interesting ways of um, experiencing God. And so I look at the moon and the stars and I look at um, all of these other alternate forms of wisdom, the, you know, for women, I have a section on femininity and menstruation and all of these mm. um, sort of things that um, we've overlooked, you know, um, and seeking to find um, God there. And also, of course, you know, because I love the Bible, I connect all of it to scripture. And so I like to say that all of it is biblical, right? Like looking <laughs> at, looking to the, the moon and the stars um, for wisdom is biblical. Um, if you take the Bible seriously, it's yeah. there. So yeah, so I, I, um, I look at scripture and I look at um, creation, the body, the feminine, um, wisdom, which is mostly just alternate forms of wisdom. Um, I always forget the fifth one, <laughs> creation, the body, wisdom, um, yeah, the feminine and, oh, spirit and just, um, how to engage, um, with the spirit in, in, uh, different and unique ways. So yeah, this is for people who haven't read a devotional in years and this is for people who love reading devotionals. So <laughs> whatever, yeah. whatever, wherever you find yourself, this is for you. If you want to, um, kind of get into like a 40 day practice. Maybe, you know, a lot of folks haven't done that in a while. Um, it might be a fun way to do this and, and just see and, and experience different things in the Bible that you may never have known are there. So, mm. yeah. Well, thank you so much, Kat, for taking time out of, out of your day to sit with us, sit with me and by extension, everyone who listens to chat about just God, the Bible, theology. Um, it's been an absolute honor and I've had the best time. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was so fun.